You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Oh my God! It's full of stars. Space time. Mind. Mind. 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 Space time. Mind. I should somehow do a Jedi mind meld. There you go, Hello, everybody. Welcome to Space Time Mind. This is Pete Mandic, and this is also Richard Brown. C'est moi. That's funny how we do that. Uh, just being ourselves. I was identical to myself uh, all day today. <laughs> oh yeah, you don't believe in identity, really, though. <laughs> what do you mean I don't believe in identity? Well, because you believe in uh, temporal parts. Oh, temporal parts. Well, there's still identity. There's but still like in any, but within one given temporal part, there's identity, not across parts. Yeah, and the worm is identical to itself. Well, that's just a a way of picking out a bunch of temporal parts, the grouping them together. There's no real unity amongst them. Mm, yeah, there's real. I mean, I don't know what you think real unity is. I don't. I still don't like identity. From Oaks. <laughs> but what I mean, there's like you know, um, there seems to be more. There seems to be more identity going on, or un, sorry, more unity going on with a coffee cup than with, say, um, a baseball team. And you might say that that's got something to do with like sticking together, hanging out in space. Uh-huh. And so maybe, uh, but you might like, also say that's just due to your sensory systems and the way they group objects. So that if you were a much larger creature, let's say a planet-sized creature, to use Eric, one of Eric Schwitzgebel's a uh, um, thought experiments, you might see the uh, baseball team as one thing. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. Well, I'm. I don't know. I guess I am pro hoax. Oh, yeah, not hoax remember, again. Remember hoax? No, not hoax again. <laughs> Somebody, some, one of our no, listeners. No, but, but come on, hoax, hoax is, yeah, I guess I guess what you're saying is that uh, this is myriology with temporal parts. Yeah. Um, but, but, but my point wasn't was really that once you accept the idea that there are these temporal parts, then you're forced into this kind of... Uh, Myriology game, so that you, so what so you can call you can say that identity is having these temporal parts grouped in a certain way, but there's no good reason to group from from the point of view of like looking at the temporal parts. There's no good, and then if you think about you know maybe some considerations from physics that show you that in fact different observers will group them in different ways, um, depending on their relative speeds and so forth and so on. So I actually accept that conclusion, but I'm not sure about the the inference from the one to the other. I don't uh-huh. see why that's supposed to be true. 
What's the inference? What are you talking well, about? The, so, like, once I'm happy with um, this temporal part story about yeah. co the continuity of persons over time, uh -huh. then I'm I'm led to some like just really super promiscuous muriological realism whereby the uh, the a hoke, which is an oak tree in the nearest horse, that's a thing. And that thing is just as real as a coffee cup or a brain or uh, a, a puppy dog. I, so I do think the conclusion, like, yes, that Hulk... Yeah, I'm actually, most days, I'm like, yeah, sure, Hulk's are real. And but I not at, by the, so not at any given time. So at any given time, there's no Hulk. Because inside a given temporal slice, everything is what it is. And you can give really clear identity kits. Oh, you want hopes. One can give very clear identity conditions about the things in a given temporal slice. The question is then, what's the next temporal slice? Um, and what's the good reason for assigning it as the next one? Mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that's a, I think, a slightly different question than the Hoke question. Although they're related by, yes, muriology. I, I get that. But it's not, it's not, I don't think it's the same as just saying, are hoax real objects in the world? This is a question about um, if you had all the temporal slices laid before you, what's the correct ordering of them? Uh, and um, uh, my, I'm suggesting that there's no good reason to say there is a correct ordering if you accept the temporal slice. Right, and I want to know why that conditional is supposed to be true. Why it's supposed to be true that if you accept the temporal slice thing, then you're no longer going to have a good way of individuating space-time into one set of worms versus another. It, and by the way, is that a fair way of characterizing what you're saying yeah. in terms uh -huh. of like carving the whole space-time loaf, carving it up into sub-worms? Yeah. Uh, there's no good way of carving it up into sub-worms is what you're, you're saying. The consequent of the conditional is. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that there might still be well, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah. any way that you do it's going to be kind of arbitrarily, arbitrary, um, and, and, and going to be different than the way it's done within a given slice. Um, but what if so someone what said, that, sorry, go ahead. What if someone said this? I'm not, I'm, I mean, like I said, I kind of actually agree with the conclusion, like it is kind of arbitrary, but someone said, no, it's not arbitrary, here's the way you figure out what the right worms are. Uh, the right worms have to do with um, causal relations that are mediated by spatiotemporal contiguity. Uh -huh. So <clears throat> things like light cones and stuff are going to enforce a certain um, carving, which is more natural than other carvings. So um, right now, uh, Ju Jupiter is not causally influencing anything that's happening on Earth because it would take so much time for any any kind of influence to propagate. Um, so therefore, there is no hole, there is no worm that's going to have any of Jupiter's time slices as be par part of the same worm that has Pete and Richard time slices. So that, you, that, that kind of causal, like spatiotemporally mediated causal contiguity will give you um, it will eliminate some of the worms uh, schemes, some of the carving schemes. And so how do you get that from a temporal slice? How do I get it from a temporal slice? You're supposed to derive the ordering of these 
temporal slices from the slices themselves and you're saying okay so for each slice there's a causal sigma jigabogger <laughs> which tells you what the next slice in the uh, sequence is so where how do you get that from from any given temporal slice I don't remember these temporal slices are they're static I guess I assume right this is the idea that they are static things um, so that they are uh, everything there is motionless everything there is in a position and not yeah. another position for the most cla classical for the most part you know right oh. so so how do you know what's the what the causal links are to the next slice um, if you have I, them all ordered one way yeah you can and uh, you but That's you're, <clears throat> I don't. But I don't think. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. You're asking me how do you derive it from a a given slice, and I, and I don't think that you would have to derive it from a given slice. I'm saying that you look at, you you look at the entirety of the loaf, and uh, there are some. You'll see that there are some ways of carving the loaf. This carving this four dimensional uh, space time loaf into. Uh, one set of worms versus another set of worms, <clears throat> and what and what will allow you to yeah, do and what will allow you to see that the uh, that there are certain kinds of relations between some slices. What relations? Uh, slicing. What uh, causal, relations? Uh, number one, causal relations. Number. Two, what does that look like? What does a causal relationship between two slices look like? What do you look for? Uh, Humean type regularities. So. You have to define the regularity, and then you look for it. So but, it's kind of you, you kept cut, you cut me off a little bit there. Part of it is also a, a contiguity thing. So near, nearness yeah. in uh, for the four dimensional manifold. The speed of light is going to impose certain kinds of uh, special distances. So things that are so yeah. far away as to not be in this one another's light cones, there yeah. there isn't going to be a causal a relation there, right? So, so what? But how? Which things are those? How do you know? The the usual way we know. So so uh, so, so there's there's. Well, you're no, you're about, talking about how yeah, we whatever. do science and how we know. I'm asking a different question. I'm asking if you sort of, if you think about what it means to have a bunch of temporal slices be what there is in reality. That it's a bunch of uh, frozen, static, individual things. Uh, and you want if these are just so if they're randomly sorted, if God shuffles the deck <laughs> of temporal slices, how do you reassemble them in in the one true order? Now you uh, say causal relations between them. Okay, well, how do you define that? You can define that in a lot of different ways. Get a lot of different regularities amongst these things. I assume. What's the? And I'm ignoring a lot of quantum stuff, obviously, here, since I think a lot of what you're saying is can't be right, but. Uh, and I don't think that. Well, I don't. I'm not sure if temporal slice theory is committed to something like that. So I wonder. I, it can't be um, if it's con, if it's compatible with quantum mechanics. But you know, I thought we were talking about like how you carve a lo like. I thought you were giving me a loaf. Uh huh. So the loaf is a. I'm giving you slices. Double deck of card. Now you're giving. Now you're giving me slices. Well, that's all I ever gave you. But I thought they were already ordered. No, no, no. I'm that. See, I that's where. That's a shuffling problem. No, no, that's my whole question is if they're shuffled, how do you reorder them? How do you determine the order from one to I still the next? think you could use the sort of thing I was talking about. So um, things about um, 
spatiotemporal contiguity. Uh, so, so where would that be one, in the description of the temporal slice? Like, where would you where would you look in the description of the physics for like which things are next to which things? So, you, so let let's imagine a very simple universe, one that uh, a very normal, ordinary way of describing it. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a uh, there's two uh, balls, a red one and a blue one, yeah. and uh, they're moving toward each other. Okay. So um, now there's a bunch of ways of so we like you know they over a period a of ten minutes. Two-dimensional space. What? It's a three-dimensional space. Okay. Or do you want? Oh, we can make it simple and have it be a two-dimensional space. So the red circle and a blue circle, and they're moving toward each other over a period of ten minutes. Okay. And um and then so uh, there's all these different ways of shuffling the the 3D deck of cards. Um and and on some of the ways of doing it there won't be um you won't get straight world lines or uh unbroken world lines. Yes. And um and there's other ways of doing it that will give you unbroken world lines. And I'm saying that so when, when I keep invoking spatiotemporal contiguity, that's another way of describing shuffling the deck of cards in such a way so that the world lines, the, the, the 3D world lines of these two-dimensional things uh, end up being unbroken lines. Yes. That is a more parsimonious uh, way of, of uh, ordering the cards than the other ways of doing it. And so that one is preferred. That's an argument for preferring something. Not That's for, right. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, see, I'm just I'm bringing this up to question the inference. No. Uh, I don't I don't see that you have an argument yet, even though I kind of like the conclusion that you're heading towards. Uh -huh. So if I'm someone, I think well, the argument is that it's if you like if you prefer <laughs> if you prefer straight world lines, then you get one uh, identity claims one way. If you don't prefer, then you get them a different way. Yeah. So is there a real way, or is there, if you prefer, I mean, the question is, can you get the real way, or is there even such, because I would have thought that someone who really thought that there was identity <laughs> uh, um, isn't going to be satisfied, or I'll say it, I'm not satisfied with just having a preferred way of grouping these things, because what it means, look at it, within any given time slice, we know what identity means. Um, it's that's real identity. It's the same thing. It has certain properties, uh, which are very important. Modal properties, for, for for example, which the series doesn't, or doesn't have necessarily. So it doesn't seem like you really get identity. Yeah, you get some preferred way of grouping the slices. Maybe, maybe you get you get a. Uh, if you like straight world lines and so parsimony and that kind of stuff gives you some reason for thinking this is a nice way of grouping them. That's not this. That doesn't ring the same bell for me as identity. Now maybe you're saying that's all we can get. That's why I sort of said you don't get real identity from this kind of. Oh, and view. so what's the? Can you you want to sketch out the alternative uh, in the world of the two-dimensional world of the blue and the red ball? Well, instead of there being a series of instantaneous slices, um, each with a, you might think, distinct, separate object in, in that slice, um, you have one thing which continues. Well, two things, two balls. Yeah, whatever. Two things which continue. Yeah. <laughs> two things which continue. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's the alternative. And how do you know it's not just one thing? That take that happens to take up two different spaces. 
Oh, well, that's a good question. So how do you know? Uh, you told me it was two things. You told, you told me it was two things. I, don't, I didn't know I was supposed to uh, give you some criterion of identity. So the man in the street says, yeah, it's two balls moving toward each other over a period of 10 minutes. And then the philosophers come in, and one of them is an eternalist, and the other yeah. one is a presentist. Yes. <laughs> um, so the man in the street says there's two balls, but... Uh, Eternalist says, well, actually, there's... A this isn't really eternalism and presentism, although they're related. This is more like four-dimensionalism. But, but yes, they're, but they're uh, technically separate. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're different. What? Uh, this so is, you know, just because someone said they were different doesn't mean they're different. No, they are, they are different. Temporal parts is a, is a question about... Um, you could say they're related by saying... Whether there are temporal parts is a question about whether a given object is fully present at any given moment. That would be a way of relating them. That's not the only way to say what, what's going on here, but yeah. Anyway, sorry, Wait, go ahead. That was a description of four-dimensionalism or eternalism? Uh, that would have been a description of a way to relate four-dimensionalism to, uh, to presentism and eternalism, yeah. Wait, but which one was it? Which of the three things was that? It's all three. So if you say uh, uh, four-dimensionalism is the view that uh, that uh, objects aren't wholly present at each moment. That's four-dimensionalism. It's one way of saying what four-dimensionalism is. And what, wouldn't an, an eternalist agree with that? Yes. That's why I said you sort of define, you're relating it to presentism and eternalism. Yeah, yeah. Uh... All right. So that, that's what we. That's a one way of relating the two, which I guess is what you were doing. That's what you were thinking. I mean, I assume that's what you. I just no. use those labels interchangeably because I still don't know what the difference is supposed to be. Well, one is a claim about whether there are parts like that. So a table has parts, um, and an electron doesn't have parts. So that's spatial parts, you might think. Um, and so four-dimensionalism is often cast as a view which claims that. There are temporal parts on analogy to uh, spatial parts, so that an so that what it means for there to be an object or a thing to exist through time is for there to be different parts uh, which compose the whole. And that's the thing I was saying. You don't really really get it. So what is eternalism that. such that that isn't also, in addition to being four dimensionalism, eternalism? Uh, eternalism is the view that all times are equally real. It doesn't, in right, and of so, itself, make any claim about parts. But okay, but it might be entailed by four-dimensionalism, because if I have temporal parts, there has to be, there has to be these other times in which the temporal parts are. Um, I don't so think so. They could be. They could. You could be a presentist and think that there are temporal parts, and they just are destroyed really quickly. <laughs> I don't know. Is that an incoherent view? Maybe. I just thought of it. <laughs> Man, you fucking around quantifiers. <laughs> I forgot to set the timer that tells us when it's the half hour mark and that we should take a break. That was a half hour. You feel like that was a half hour? Oh, are you asking me about my estimation of subjective time or objective time? Can you derive from your current time <laughs> slice how many time slices there have been until now? No, that's the problem with time slices is that oh. you can't derive from any single time slice. I mean, this, you know, 
illustrate my problem with this. The same issue you get with uh, talking about um, velocity in Newton, the way you resolve Zeno's paradox. I mean, I, th I think we've talked about this before, so I don't know if we need to talk about it again, but for Newton, you can't say w from any given moment whether something's in motion. You need to talk about a series of moments and say whether the thing has changed position so that there's no no way to determine from a given time slice whether the thing there is going to be somewhere else next. And that's kind of the idea uh, I, um, related to the idea that I was trying to press that there's also no, I mean, you know, no good reason to treat the next one as the same in any good sense except by some arbitrary means. Right. Uh, I agree with that. Yeah, see, but that's not real identity because real identity means it's necessarily the same. That, that was my point. So how about we take a break? Yeah. And, I uh, thought we just did. Oh, wait a minute. No, hold on a second. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, we're taking a break now. Welcome back from the break, everybody. <laughs> now I'm actually going to press the timer, and we're going to go another 30 minutes. Hey, did you did you listen to our the Sean Carroll episode? No, I haven't had time. I've been busy. i got to tell you, it was pretty good. Oh, yeah? Which I think you knew well, already. I was so good about it. <laughs> Classy. Classy. Classy as hell. And um, <laughs> I thought everyone did a really good job. All of our guests are great. All of them have been terrific, but some yeah. of them have more experience being podcast guests and, pu and doing public speaking in general than others. Uh, and so Sean, uh, Sean really knows how to talk and uh, talk in a way that is uh, useful for moving the conversation along. Yeah, he's a smart guy. He's fun to talk to. I, yeah. It's funny. Somebody said on the, I saw they wrote that he sounded like a uh, young Howard Stern. <laughs> young Howard Stern. <laughs> Yeah, I can kind of hear that. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I must admit I'm a little sick of physics at this point after having... Because our last two episodes were about <laughs> physics. And I, oh, really? I, I edit this stuff, which means I listen to it over and over again. Uh-huh. And holy moly, physics. Are you Really? Plus, I, I taught philosophy of space and time last semester. Uh-huh. I need a little Bummer, bit. dude. I don't know. I never get sick of that stuff. You never get sick of physics? Not really. What do you are you teaching anything physics y this semester? Psychophysics. What? <laughs> What's the class you're teaching for the psychology department? General psychology. Uh huh. 
Yeah. yeah. What psychophysics you guys going to do? It's a difficult class. We're not doing any psychophysics, uh, but we're talking about it. And they have some online activities where they uh, get to test their absolute threshold and stuff like that, I think. But yeah. um, some of that's really cool. I used to team teach a class with a psychologist and a biologist. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that we did with the students, it was just like a classroom demonstration, is we had them. Um, poking each other on the skin of different parts of their bodies. I would never encourage that in the classroom. And they were measuring, uh, they were checking to see like how far two pokes had to be before uh, the subject could tell it was two yeah. pokes instead of one poke. And that's a little, cutaneous rabbit, right? That's the, uh, you can do that on the back and get really weird results. Yeah, that has to do with, yeah, that has to do with time, like weird time perception stuff. This is just about spatial acuity. Yeah. So, like, on your thigh, on your thigh and your back, the nerve endings are very far apart. And right. uh, two pokes, like two pencil tips or whatever, they have to be, uh, they have to be pretty far apart before you can tell it's two of them. And I think the kids, and to some degree, the uh, professors always are a little bit surprised. Mm -hmm. Um, like, wow, you know, you kind of, you kind of feel like you feel all of space, like there you are, you're in the physical world and you could see all of it and you could feel all of it and these tiny little experiments, they're really simple experiments to conduct, they demonstrate that like, yeah, you really, there's a lot going on that you aren't aware of. You could, yeah. you could see it, like there's two pencil tips poking you on, the, on the, the skin right above your knee and it feels like it's just one pencil tip. Well, I, I don't know. I remember learning. I mean, I remember discovering. I wasn't that surprised. It doesn't seem that shocking to me that... Uh, well, you are a super genius. I know. It's just I tried to, you know, I've had itches on my back that I tried to itch and noticed that it wasn't exactly... It was kind of difficult to locate exactly where it was because the feeling was kind of spread over an area and yeah. then you would find where the bump is and then you would go, oh, it was over here. <laughs> it happens occasionally, I think. I don't think, uh, if you you know, it's, you have to be a super genius to pay attention. Well, to I think maybe you are just implicitly dissing people in New Jersey because all the students <laughs> pretty surprising. <laughs> I think what was more surprising was you were having people touch other people's thighs in a classroom. Yeah, it's a, it was a learning experience. You know what's funny? The, the thing that I've been liking lately, have you ever heard of a finger sausage? This is something that the book we use tells you to do. Yeah, the finger sausage. Uh, I think I heard, maybe I'm uh, misremembering my illusions, but one of these in the neighborhood is called <laughs> the Aristotle illusion. So it's either that one or there's one where you cross your fingers and then you put a, like a pen in between. One oh. of those two is called the Aristotle illusion. Interesting. And I believe I don't, they don't call it not. It's not in the book I use. Yeah, Aristotle. Aristotle was like making hot dogs in his mind. <laughs> finger, sausage, finger sausages are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because I was thinking about finger sausages with respect to transparency as a just because I was uh oh we that, were talking uh, about this in my class and afterwards I was thinking about it. Like it doesn't does it really seem like I mean I guess in a sense it does when you do the finger sausage. And and you see the weird third double tipped finger floating between your regular two fingers. Does it really seem? I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't seem that far of a stretch to me to say that's a property of my experience, uh, not a pro not something in the world. Although it does still look like a finger in some sense. So in some sense, it is like a thing. Yeah, uh, with spatial which, with spatial things, um, it's. It's, sometimes it's easy to settle transparency claims. Sometimes it's hard. 
yeah. in the case of the hot dog thing, does it seem like the hot dog is outside outside of you? I think in a sense it does, and in a sense it doesn't. So, so I think that there's a sense in which it looks like a finger, and a finger is a thing that's, I mean, external to me. So in a sense it looks like a thing that's external to me. But it also looks like a weird product of my visual system, and you can kind of see at which point it, it comes together by moving your fingers, and so it, it clearly is a product of the visual system. But it, so it, it seems like both at the same time. I mean, I, I well. But be, being the product of your visual system, is that something that you conclude in thought, or is that something that is perceptually manifest to you? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think uh, I think that it's it's hard to answer that question. I'm not sure what to say about it. It looks like. Uh, it has a, like a look, I mean, it, when I'm aware of it, when I introspect it, when I attend to it, whatever you want to say about that stuff, it, it, it seems like, in some sense, whether it's, I'm not sure what to say about it, it seems like a, like a property of my experience, like not something that's really out there. Yeah. Although in another sense, it does seem as though it's something that's out there. So I'm not sure how you would tell if that's a percept, like is that a property of, is that a perceptible property being, a property of your experience. I'm not sure if that is or isn't. Yeah. What do you? I mean, how, how would you? What do you say about this? What do transparency people say about this? You're the transparency the expert, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, thank you very much. Um, it's kind of a nightmare. There's a lot of things lurking in the background, mm -hmm. like what do you think about cognitive phenomenology? Yeah. Well, you know what I think about okay. that. Uh, do I? Have I you thought we wrote a paper about... on this. <laughs> Um, it's a really in 2012, good 2012. In 2012, and published it in exactly. 2012 after we wrote it in 2014. Exactly. Ah, uh, boy. So anyway, transparency. What do they say about finger sausages or the hot dog? I think transparency people are all, all over the map. Uh, but if you ask me, I think the finger sausage is out. It's out there. That's what it looks like. It looks like it it's looks out like there. It's out there. Yeah. And it and, takes and, a lot of work. Um, but here's, I mean, here's what I think about this stuff. I think that if you think it takes a lot of work for it not to look that way, yeah. But but one of the, here's one of the things that you can accomplish with work. With work, you can make things become automatically perceptually apparent that previously you only had access to through theoretical inference. Yeah. You know, for example, you you might not be very good at telling the difference between a, a transistor and a resistor. It looks just like some wires and plastic. But then you acquire the concept, and then you get trained up, and uh, eventually you are able to apply this automatically without any conscious inference. Maybe there's still inference going on, but not. But you no longer go through a conscious inference, and then just blammo, um, now you so are. I thought it was a transistor and a what? A res a resistor. A transistor and a resistor. Yeah. So what if you erroneously think there's something called a, you know. Trisister, <laughs> Trisister, uh, <laughs> Trisister, which uh, has properties intermingled between the two of them, let's say, or has the third property, uh, which neither of them have. And you become, and you think that what makes the difference between a transistor, a resistor, and a trisistor is that the trisistor ones have red stripes on them. So uh, now do you then become very good at, does your uh, appearance, Appearance of the things change; they start to look like transistors as opposed to transistors. And yes, re yeah. really. So even fictional things could start to look like unicorns. And yep. Uh, yep. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they can. So you know, I was th so this is something else I was thinking about the other day. Um, suppose that you accept because this is kind of goes along with you know some of the stuff you say in your brain introspection of brain states as such or whatever. The introspectability of brain states as such. An excellent article. <laughs> I'm really proud of that one. A lot of the things uh, I've published, I, th I, I, I'm like, let's pretend that never happened. <laughs> this is one of the ones where, like, I stand by this one. I still like this. It's so it wasn't clear to me whether you were like defending Churchland or also saying I ha have this view. Because one project you're saying here's Churchland's view, here's the argument, here's why he thinks that, here's why he's committed to it. But then in addition, you're saying no, that's also your view. Yeah. You think it goes along with like higher order thought theories? That, like, uh, does does the concept act? Because one kind of argument that you hear for higher order thought theories, one that David Rosenthal gives, and I've you know myself endorsed, is the kind of concept acquisition, or you get a word, you notice the difference between two things, so your experience changes. The wine tasting kind of example is the classic yeah. example of this. So, if you take that line seriously, I wonder. Let Let's suppose that you bought that. You know, some people don't. But let's suppose that you do. Let's suppose you couple that with the idea that you can have erroneous theories about things and that even if you accept them and automatically apply them, nonetheless, it still seems to you that you're picking those things out. Yeah. Right? So now suppose that you have a theory about mental states, about qualia being simple, unanalyzable features of your experience. And so when you when you introspect, it appears to you as though you're in contact with something like that because you're automatically applying this kind of theory, right? So that's a consequence of accepting this kind of account. Yeah. So if you accept this kind of account, then it looks like there's this huge confound uh, in, in consciousness studies, uh, the confound of uh, not only appealing to introspection, but of thinking that there's any such thing as a pre-theoretical approach that you can get from the first person. Yeah, and that maybe. seems, to, but that seems to derail certain projects, like projects where, that start with or insist that you start with a pre-theoretical characterization of uh, of mental talk as a way of getting a grip on it. And so this is some some I think that Rosenthal has talked a lot about in his work, and that I think is an important point that. Before you can even really start talking, you need to say what we're talking about. So you need to, and the yeah. way we get a grip on that is to try to get a pre-theoretical, commonsensical view. But it seems like it's a it's a consequence of this theory that there is no such thing. So isn't that a tension? Not uh, a problem. Be a little bit of a difficult spot. Uh, before I continue, I should say like what you have just described over the you know, past several seconds, uh, very much is my current view of things. Okay. I, I think. I think I'm willing to finally fully come out and say, you know what, I, I give up. I'm a higher order thought theorist. <laughs> you're giving up. What do you mean you're giving up? Well, there was a there was a few years ago where I was fighting, and in yeah. in print I even seemed to be more uh, have more of a Jesse Prince kind of theory. Uh huh. Right. Remember all that allocentric, egocentric interface stuff. Intermediate. Yeah. You know, but, that's still, I mean, I think that you could still have that kind of view for first-order states. I mean, all you have to do is, I mean, I think we had this argument a long time ago, so you could, it's very easy to say, 
yeah, well, that's an account of what first order representations are, and then you need the, but they can happen unconsciously, and then the answer to the question how they become conscious. Yeah, maybe, but I, yeah, the que the question I'm interested in what is consciousness, and I'm inclined yeah. to say like, okay, all right, higher order guys, why fight it? Why fight it? Well, there's some good some good arguments there. Well, let's focus on the argument you just sketched. So you think that this really creates trouble for where you're supposed to be getting your data from, and whether you can appeal to things like pre pre theoretical ways of of stating things. Yeah, well, I'm wondering if it's yeah, if you're if you're somebody who's advocating this view, saying to people, uh, you know, like I was reading uh, Bree Gertler's paper recently on acquaintance and introspection. Gertler, like Bree's work, right? She's yep. acquaintance is a very big. <laughs> it's making a comeback, and it's not an accident because there are people exploring that 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 view, you know. But uh, introspection. Introspection is playing an important role there, and you know it seems these people are nice people. Like I know these people, so when they say that this is how their experience seems to them, um, I I think well I'm not going to go over there and try to say no, it doesn't seem that way to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had a big uh, fight, friendly fight, but big fight with Ken Williford when I was down in Texas about this. He loved uh, he loves him some directness some acquaintance and really, yeah. really, really hates higher order uh, and representational theories in general. And I'm right. like, you, you have zero evidence for your view. Well, but but here, part of my point is that when you say stuff like that, uh, you're, you're, it's, it's, you put yourself in a weird position. So if by zero evidence you mean non-question-begging evidence, maybe. But if by zero evidence you mean no evidence from the way things appear to them from the first person perspective, then I think they might have some evidence like that if they are applying the, these concepts. I mean, from your own view about what introspection is, if they have this theory about how the mind works and that becomes automatic, and so from their point of view, that is going to be the way their experience appears to them. And so does that give them some justification for saying, look, this is the way things appear to me? Now, now the move from that to oh, everyone right. appears that way. There's the thing, but is that zero evidence? I mean, I, no, I think that question that, aside, I think that still is some evidence they might have. I think everything that you and just it follows say from is your view error. that they might have that evidence. Uh, yeah, but like you like you said when you start off there, um, right? Uh, is it non-question begging evidence, or is it? Yeah. I mean, here's another way of kind of getting to the point. Is there any way of resolving what seems to be an impasse about starting points? So yeah. The, so the people that are coming from my side of things and uh, the people that are really like uh, direct access and um, acquaintance, we have these starting points, and it doesn't look like there's much common ground that that would help tilt things in, in one direction or another. It looks like like a just a, a plain old impasse. Exactly, but at the same time, you have people like you guys are saying, like, and you know, Rosenthal does this, but you do it as well, and you know, probably I've done it as well. You say, look, you know, uh, we can explain the way these appearances are, and that captures like the way our experience is, and we accuse the other person, like you know, Josh, in his paper, abusing the no what is likeness, his response to Block, you know, Weisberg says. Yeah, he says, oh, you have a fanatical view about what it's like, and we have a more appropriate view about what it's like, and it's like, okay, but <laughs> you can't say that without also admitting that your own view is 
highly theoretical, not the common sense view. Um, but at the same time, trying to position your view as being the more in tune with the pre-theoretical common sense view <laughs> when it follows from your own view that it kind of can't be. That's that's sort of the. It's not an argument. I don't. I think it's kind of like a. It's a a, a tension. I think um, if you really if you really take this account seriously, then it seems to undermine your ability to criticize other people for um, uh, for, for having certain direct intuitions about directness and so forth and so on because you know that could be really how their experience is presented to them what are they supposed to think well I would want to know what their their general theory of everything is and how it's all all hangs together right and if um, if their general theory of everything is like philosophy first or hey why not dualism then I'm going to say, well, I don't like that. I don't like uh, you know, or, or... Why, why not? I mean, look, I, I'm not, I'm not a friend of dualism, I guess, or maybe you know, uh, I don't think I'm a dualist. Um, at least consciously, I'm not aware of being a dualist. But you used to be a dualist, uh, right? I think that's. When I, I first been. encountered dualism, it seemed obviously true to me that the that the mind was somehow distinct from the body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, worries about causal powers is actually what convinced me that it had to be something in the brain. But you know, it's not super obvious to me now um, that that if you're a dualist, you can't talk about causal powers in any satisfying way. I mean. You know, one way of putting the point is, uh, like I think I've said this in somewhere, not in print, or maybe I'm not sure, but anyway, but one thing I think is like once you read Hume, <laughs> and if you're a regularity theorist, then cause is not a problem. Yeah. Um, anything can cause anything, I think, is the way David Rosenthal once put it. It's like, yeah, if you're a Humean about causation, what's the especially difficult problem about mental causation and non-physical things causing physical a regularity business right. so so that I mean that by itself already seems to me like a pretty yeah and a lot of people who are naturalists are except human like you did yourself we're talking about human regularities um, just a second ago so if you if you take that kind of view then I'm not really sure what it is that would be so terrible about uh, non-physical physical causation or excuse me not so un unintelligible um, but in addition to that, so that's one thing I would say about causal worries. But in addition to that, uh, if you're a panpsychist, I mean, I really think that one thing that David Chalmers has done recently, and to me, it's been fairly convincing, is to argue that panpsychism gives you causal powers for the, these mental. Um, and the simple way to see that is if you think that mass has causal powers, then obviously whatever the intrinsic nature of mass is is going to have those causal powers because that's what mass is in some deep sense so if um, phenomenal properties or proto-phenomenal properties or some kind of conscious properties uh, or near conscious properties are the intrinsic natures of the things we call physical properties then of course they have causal powers and they play a causal role in the physical world they they are the ground of uh, the things that we call causal powers so that seems pretty important and now that does that now that's not an argument for panpsychism but that is a way of saying uh, of diffusing an argument against panpsychism I think 
a lot of people say, ah, oh, well, epiphenomenalism is the only view that you can have here, and that just seems to me not to be the case. So recently, we it's been shown convincingly, I think, that that's not the case. Um, in addition to that, if you're another kind of dualist, the, uh, so if you take quantum mechanics um, and have a dualism like that, which Chalmers has also worked on developing, then you could find a causal power, a causal role there for some kind of non-physical substance, at least in some sense, um, possibly. So it's not clear to me that uh, you can just say, oh, well, the mind causes things, therefore it's physical. I, at one point in my life, I thought that was a fairly decisive counter-argument. Uh, and if, if the options are accept epiphenomenalism or physicalism, then I say, yeah, come on, dualism is a mistake. But uh, these other kinds of views, if they get causal powers into the world, then that's a significant advance in our understanding of what, a, what these non-physical accounts are. And I think yeah. that has been what's been going on. So I'm not saying I've been converted to dualism. What I'm saying is it's, you know, uh, I'm, I, I, this is a point I think I'll, I'll let you have your say in a second. But, I mean, I think I've made this point a lot. Some, something I, I think Quinians and people who like Quine in general should be more open to is the idea that well-developed theories are better than underdeveloped theories. You may not like a, a theory, but all we have are the theories. And uh, so having these theories developed so that we can, if it really comes down to, as you were saying, looking at the overall accounts and comparing theories of the total swath of experience, then we want the other side to be well developed and to see what they really are committed to and what they aren't and what the costs are and so forth and so on. And so in that sense, I'm for exploring these other theories, even if I'm, you know, ultimately at heart, my heart thinks, you know, it's got to be something in the brain. Um, but it's not clear to me that causal worries really do the work they once were thought to do. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, what's it, so is that, what, what do you think about the, the argument from causal powers and panpsychism. I um I I I think that you make pretty good points that um the the neutral monists and the uh, Russell whatever whatever you want to call the, that intrinsicalism whereby yeah, yeah. phenomenality is, is the gives you the intrinsicness that relates all the relations that I I think that 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 uh, as far as Technical philosophy goes gives a good, pretty good way of wiggling out of some of the the worries about mental causation. Um, <laughs> Why, as far as technical philosophy? <laughs> well, there's this gets us kind of close to like starting points, and uh, uh, but what and what are the starting points? But for me, you know, one of the starting points is what does it most naturally make sense to attribute consciousness to besides yeah. yourself, and um, it, it's really easy to to feel confident that dogs and cats have consciousness, and it's yeah. a lot less easy to feel confident that plants have it, and even less. Uh, I have even less confidence about rocks, and um, radio waves, and so to me that that seems like something I put in the in the starting place. That, that that's that counts among the data that that I, that I'm looking for a theory to account for. And now it's always the case with data, like maybe like a, a theory does such a good job with everything else that you say, well, I guess that wasn't data after all. We just like say that that was, uh, we'll throw that 
out. We're always doing some curve fitting, right? So you say, yeah. ah, okay, so we don't hit that data point. Too much for that data point. But um, I, I haven't seen yet that the but overall... But you can also explain why. I mean, so one thing you could do is uh, say you don't hit the data point. Another thing you can do is say, well, we can explain why you started out with that level of confidence uh, before you became a panpsychist. Um, which, by the way, 10 years from now, you'll be coming out as a panpsychist just like you recently came out as a higher order thought theorist. So you'll, you'll get there. Oh, um, no. I'll, hey, I'll... <laughs> Just give me ten minutes. I got some pro panpsychism for you, but it doesn't have Jack Doodle to do with David Chalmers or quantum mechanics. Well, it might not, but uh, you know, there's so there's Russellian monism, there's Strassonian monism, there might be Chalmsarian. Uh, I, you know, I think that it, at this point, there are non people are grouping a lot of views together that are are technically different in their details. And that as people develop this, we'll see them, that come out. And, you know, I think Daniel Stoljar has actually done some really good work sort of separating. But, but, it, but back to the point I was trying to make. Um, no. uh, my, for my starting point, I put a lot more uh, credence into third-person attributions than, say, a lot of, a lot of people that, that find themselves sympathetic to Chalmers. And if you yeah. look at the way we use consciousness in, in third-person attributions... Yeah, it's it's for people and further people that are awake, and then uh, animals that are behaviorally highly similar to people. And um, so, so panpsychism is just far, far away. And your theory better have a lot of really awesome power before I start taking panpsychism seriously. And awesome by awesome power, I mean like awesome in general, not just like oh, there's some. Problems in academic analytic. Well, it depends on what you mean by awesome, because uh, it's pretty awesome to be able to integrate consciousness into the physical world <laughs> in a in a fundamental way. And you're right. It. You, I saw so what I was saying in response to your point, which I think is a nice point, is that um, obviously one doesn't come to studying consciousness thinking that one will be led to the view that electrons are, are conscious or that uh, that consciousness is a fundamental aspect of nature, although lots of people think that's not a weird view. Um, the question, though, is whether the fact that you're, you started out pre-theoretically um, uh, having certain placeholders set is a good reason to exclude a certain class of theories. And, and I think as you yourself admitted, no, it's not. To some extent, we always are giving up certain things. Um, uh, the question is, what does the theory explain? Uh, so y you're right. If you if you don't think that there's a explanatory problem, I think what this uh oh is that our timer? Yeah, why well, don't you finish the point and then? Uh, <laughs> <That's terrifying. laughs> yes. Uh, so if you um, if you don't think that there's I think this is why the hard problem of consciousness sticks around. Even in the psychology textbook I use, they use the word hard problem. They don't cite Chalmers, interestingly, but they say there is a hard problem there, um, which is funny. Uh, but th there are you know, the w certain ways of thinking about our own conscious experience that make a hard problem natural and certain ways of thinking about it that don't. Um, and if you think that uh, you know, uh, the stuff we've been saying is right, then the way you pre-theoretically come to these debates may and, and where you end up may have a lot to do with theoretical assumptions that were smuggled in beforehand. Um, and so I don't know if, uh, you know, and then if a panpsychist can say, well, yeah, 
you don't think electrons are conscious because they don't behaviorally respond very complex. Um, and that's true, they don't. They have very simple behaviors, and so that's a way of you know saying, okay, but to some extent they do exhibit behaviors in response to the environment. So if you just go by behaviors, then simple behavior, simple consciousness. It doesn't seem as though uh, your pre-theoretical commitments really rule that out. Uh, they're just extensions of those kinds of things. Well, why don't we take a break? Baba Booey. Baba Booey. Pretty good. This is a good break. Cool. Welcome back from the break, everybody. <laughs> so can I can I get your reaction to one thing? Uh, one other thing I want to think about here. Um, yeah. What do you think about extended mind stuff? Uh, like the the, the Aunt Chalmers Clark like extended mind. I think that extended mind is good insofar as it's extended brain. Uh huh. And it pretty much sounds like they're talking about extended brain. So, Even with the notebook? Yeah, you know, if you are kind of, if you're kind of uh, happy with multiple realizability and functionalism already, then I think you should be pretty happy with letting, letting that stuff out into the, into the wild. Um, I, I sort of think functionalism entails the extended mind to some, I mean, I don't see how you can if, endorse functionalism and deny the extended mind. Well, I've been saying that for years. I mean, some oh, people have. Like, like Kanazawa. Uh, <laughs> some other, I don't know who else is in this camp, but they think that you could you could draw some important boundaries anyway. There's like transducer boundaries that are super important. I think uh, Frankie uh, Egan over at Rutgers gave a talk at CUNY a few years back where she was pushing a similar sort of view. But I, I've been in the camp that like, yeah, if you like functionalism and multiple realizability, then of course some in some cases you're going to have a thing in which a, a human brain is just a proper part of the substrate that support that supports an intelligence or a, or a consciousness and then all that's left over are kind of boring debates about like well what about like how common is it does uh, your normal use of an iPhone or a notebook does that give you uh, leaking out and at this point what I, what I say to people that ask me is what I, I want to see the science with with ontological worries about uh, in general like you know should we should we carve uh, should we carve reality into just horses and oak trees or should we carve it into hoax I want to see like um, what's the science what, look like in this case 
Well, that's my question. Like, if if we if we just say uh, the natural kinds are brains versus the natural kinds are brains plus notebooks, um, what what scientific benefit do you get from the one theory versus the other theory? What kinds of predictions and explanations are you going to get from the one theory or the other? Other otherwise, this is just arbitrary ontologies, and I don't I really don't see any point in preferring one ontology over another unless there's some scientific work that you're going to get out of it. And yeah. some people that are into Gibsonianism, they join in this debate and say, like, they claim that they can show, and I, I guess I don't follow this stuff closely enough, but, like, uh, Tony uh, Camaro and some other people, and maybe you know this better because weren't you hanging out with some Gibsonians when you were in Connecticut? They say that, yeah, we could show you the science. Why we does everyone you, say like, that? Just because I was in Connecticut, I was hanging out with Gibsonians? <laughs> what is you have been spotted with Gibsonians, sir. Because <laughs> I'm in a black book somewhere. Everybody <laughs> who approaches me is like, aha. Yeah, I want to show you the science. With... Show me what science is to be, like, What what's the benefit? What I think it's, cool at, for me, it's a consistency claim. It's, I mean, uh, if it's, so at least in one of the arguments, as I understand it, one of the arguments is that if the thing is performing function F and the thing is inside your head, then it counts as cognitive. So if that same thing is performing function F, but it's not within the confines of the brain, then it has to be merely, as you say, arbitrary to uh, deny that it's cognitive. So that in, in a real deep and important sense, it's the same function. The function is the thing that matters. It's implemented. Implementation by functional definition usually do, is not, not that important as long as it does the function. So the, the question is, how can a person who accepts this deny w without doing some arbitrary, like, no, it stops at transducers? So I thought that was more of like in lines of the argument. So I mean, it seems like you're okay with it, but I thought it was more supposed to be, look, show us what principled good reason there is uh, <laughs> for, for if you really are a functionalist um, and it's doing the same function, why does it matter where it is? But what are you doing? Are you trying to do science or are you trying to do metaphysics? Yeah, I, that's what I was saying. I think that this is a meta metaphysical argument. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in science, and so here's a, here's something that you'd be interested in as a scientist. You want to do uh, some psychophysics. You want to find yeah. out like how good blankety blank is at discriminating red from pink. Well, right. are you going to let them bring their iPhone into the lab and 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 like what is what is your goal? Like, don't you you probably already know how good the iPhone is, and you want to know how good this organism, this unaided organism, is. Why do, you, why do you want to know that? Well, because we're already doing biology. We already like. We already consider humans as these things that end at their skin. Yeah, but look, that's. I mean, so. But why uh, would, Hello, welcome to the 21st century. People bring calculators into their math class. <laughs> so when when you were young, perhaps in the golden era of dinosaur travel, you were not allowed to bring a calculator into a calculus classroom, let's say. For instance, I wasn't. It was strictly prohibited. And we had to calculate square roots by hand, for instance, and know how to do it and blah, blah, blah. Now people bring, you know, bring in these calculators. They're allowed to use them. Um, so but, but what you're going to allow people to bring in is... Um, but uh, from now, well, if you're performing a test, that's kind of a scientific endeavor. You're assessing them. Now, it depends on what you mean by science, like in the laboratory or in the field or... Uh, so yeah, if you if you're assessing just mathematical skill, you probably wouldn't allow like at the SATs they don't allow calculators. Yeah. But what if they did? <laughs>
I mean, well, I mean, what, what good reason is there not to? I can't rule it out ahead of time. I don't want to rule it out ahead of time, but it hasn't happened yet. And in but, fact, why, why they have formulas written down, and they show you the picture, uh, inscription of a triangle, so that when you're thinking about the math problem, you're looking, you're re using the image there uh, on the piece of paper yeah. to guide your mathematical reasoning. So why isn't then part of your d cognition about that distributed to the Paper. I no, I look. I think it could be. I think that the, you could extend the the brain like that, and uh, so as a matter of like, you want to talk about modality. You want to do some metaphysics. So you think brains could be non made out of not neurons? Right. Yeah. You could have a brain that's made out of paper. Yep. <laughs> or part of a part of a brain that's made out of paper. Yeah, I agree with uh, William Lycan <laughs> about this. It's functionalism, pretty much all the way down. Yeah. Cool. So, because, you know, then combine it, what I think is interesting is if you combine this idea with higher order thought theories, it seems like you get it, you could get, in principle, a kind of extended consciousness. Now, slow down there, because I'm writing a paper about this. I don't want anyone to steal my ideas. Uh-oh. Well, I might, might be talking about this in my talk. So uh, I might have already stolen your ideas. Well, here I am. I'm publishing it in a podcast. Oh, shit. Well... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I shouldn't so, have brought it up then. Sorry about that. But well, what maybe we'll ideas? have different papers about the similar topics. But I'm, I'm, okay. one of the things I'm working on right now um, is about how if you take the sort of stuff I talk about in the introspectability of brain states, you can apply that to these iPhone scenarios. Uh -huh. If you uh, get really good at automatically applying the concept uh, like uh, this is my thought. Right. So you, you, can, you, you can have conscious thoughts where the first order of thoughts supervene on external stuff. External stuff. Your, See, your I was thinking of cases where the higher order thought externs on the external stuff. You could, you could do that too. You could. I'm, no, I'm already. I already thought of that, Richard. Yeah, that. But that's a. Uh, but that seems to be a problem. Most people uh, are not unwilling to uh, to think. I mean, you know, Andy Clark has this recent paper of why he in mind, I think it was, or the Journal of Philosophy, one of those big. Yeah. Big ones. Um, well, he was saying, no, I don't think the mind consciousness extends into the environment still in the head. But cognitive things, like maybe beliefs, dispositional things, they can extend. Yeah, um, so he mostly has an intuition um, that that phenomenality <laughs> won't extend, and then he try he like tries to figure out a way of buttressing that. Uh, exactly. And I'm not. I don't remember it well enough to know whether he, he to his own satisfaction he he found a good buttress. Yeah. But no, I, and I was going to say, especially if you are attracted to a higher order theory, it seems like you can't escape it. I agree. You can't, yeah, if you're attracted to a higher order theory, then uh, away we go. We get some externalized uh, phenomenality. With yeah. notebook, like Otto, Inga and Otto. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's the scenario. You're, so you're I know, we can't co-write every paper together, so shit. We'll just have to. We'll just have to start a new cottage industry, and we'll be the major uh, contributors to it. <laughs> it's a. It's an extremely interesting cottage. I agree. I, I like it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's that it looks like we were led in similar ways because I was thinking about introspection and uh, and the way theories of uh, automatically applying theories will change what properties can seem introspectable, and so change what how your appearance, uh, your mental life appears to you, so change what it's like for you. Yeah. Uh, just following that chain of thought just to its conclusion uh, kind of leads to these ideas, I think. So So here, a slightly different track, but a similar route, um, I mean, similar endpoint. 
So a lot of a lot of stuff about extended mind and also panpsychism, I have become a lot more amenable to, but in part because of stuff I've been doing, teaching meditation and and just being a meditator. A yeah, lot weird. Of the, you know, especially if you're look, dealing with literatures that are drawing from uh, traditional Asian uh, approaches to meditation, like Indian and, and Tibetan. There's a, a there's an enormous emphasis on non-intellectual like ways of thinking about consciousness non so things that are very um, non-conceptual non-intellectual to some degree the body itself is there something being non-conceptual itself a concept (laughs) well I mean there's a way that the conceptualist or the higher thought theorist can say like yeah we can explain all this away also but the literature itself is, is, is constantly describing it as like when you're meditating, you're trying to get to this purified form of consciousness. You'll you'll be able to transcend the duality of mind and world and see that yeah. all the world is just mind and all the mind. But they often bill it as like transcending transitive consciousness, like consciousness right. that's not consciousness of anything. Right, and then yeah. you and then you try these things, or you know, you're like, well, I'll give it a try, you know. And sure, this is just a way of describing something, but maybe I won't agree with the description after I try it. But after you try it, the description does seem to get more compelling, at least to me. Uh-huh. So I come into this thinking like, yeah, I think this is kind of bullshit. I think because I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not a super big fan of sensations. I don't, I tend to not think that there are <laughs> non-conceptual mental states. But uh, okay, <laughs> well, you know, the myth, my myth of uh, myth of sensations paper. Yeah, the one uh, that doesn't make a good case for this. <laughs> so so says one of the referees. <laughs> Who's that? Oh. <laughs> so says one of the referees. Uh, who's a referee? What are you talking about? You're exposing the the uh, the whole game. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, I don't have to agree with a paper to think it's publishable. In Thank fact, I, this is changing the subject. But I thought long and hard about what the role of the referee is. Like. Is the job of the referee to help the paper be better, or to help the journal make a decision? Or it's very, it's not, it's not clear. I wish there were more well-established norms about this. Anyway, uh, so continue. So you meditate. Well, I want to say something about referees real quick, and then get okay. back to meditation. I, mm-hmm. I think um, if if as a referee, your response to the paper is long, then maybe the paper should be published and then you could go publish something else or someone else can publish that. But if you've got yeah. something long and interesting to say, then that is not a reason. Because so, <laughs> that is what happens sometimes. You get five pages of comments and you're like, yeah, it's like well, a separate if, paper responding to my paper. If it was that interesting, then it, then it should be published by the criteria that the journal said. Does it contribute right. to the discussion? Yeah, it does contribute to the discussion. You just entered into the discussion. So, like, these referees that think that the mere fact that they could think of five objections is somehow a case against publishing, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. So I think a referee should ask themselves an- to answer the following two questions in only 15 seconds. Is it, is it a piece of shit or not? If yeah, it, but that's highly subjective. Well, everything's highly I know because I've said that I have done a fair amount of editing in my short time on this life. And I have sent the same paper out to two different, let's just say, highly respectable philosophers. And one says, this is a genuine, brilliant, searching for the truth article. The other one says, is this one written by a professional philosopher? Like, this doesn't. So it's like, uh, okay, they both seem to be 
in my opinion, well, well respected, smart people. If yeah. their if their assessment of can be so different, then what's that say about the? I mean, our epistemic access to what we count as shit is colored by a lot of uh, you know. Do we agree with it? Is it is the approach I favor? This foundational issue business. If you get a paper on panpsychism, or on whether you know certain weird theories entail what, you might think this isn't serious. For you know, so I don't know if that is this shit bullshit. Uh, I mean, part of me just thinks, look, these are people trying to advance their careers. Yeah. We, you well, know, I think is the paper shit? is written to standards of English, and they make an argument. It's like, got to be objective, is right. So, like, if something is riddled, it, it with can't be objective. Like, riddled with obvious contradictions, then. Well, there's a certain minimal standard, but like, I don't know about yeah. you, but it's very rare I get a paper that's below that minimal standard. Most of the time, I'm thinking about whether a paper is like advancing the discussion, or in touch with the literature, or something's already been said, or. Um, are there like things they should have included in the paper? Are there objections that they don't seem that they are too glib about? Because I think they a lot of like five objection things is that just like a person just in a parenthesis says, "Oh yeah, forget about this stuff," and you're like, "Well, actually, this stuff's serious." So I don't know. It's um, yeah. See, that's the sort of thing. Being a reviewer is difficult. That's the sort of thing I put in the uh, the author should consider. You do. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. The author should, uh, you know. And then so, so my one of my majors is like, who are you writing the report for? Oftentimes they'll have different, a report for the editor and a report for the author, but most times people don't write two separate reports. Or I don't know, do you write two separate reports? <laughs> one for the editor, one for the author. Uh, so then it's like, well, what are you? What what's the purpose of writing the report? Like to help the person. I only write. Yeah, I I don't. I really. I really, difficult. I think anonymity is is really fucking dangerous, and so you should. The two report thing bothers me because it, it's very tempting then to say snarky things. Right. You, but, right. But the, but the question of the two reports is who are you writing the report for? So is the is your report for the editor to make a decision, and so it should be written in that manner, or is your report for the author to help them write a better paper? I try paper? to do both. I try Those to. Are yeah. Different tasks. I try to do both. You do try to I, in I, one I, in one report. Huh? I accept more stuff than other people do, probably. Uh -huh. But my general rule is like, if I've got something, if it's going to take me a while to say what I think is wrong with the paper, then that's evidence that there's nothing wrong with the paper. That's just evidence that it should be it should be let out into the wild, and people can hash it out. <laughs> do you, does the which journal it is play any role? To me, it, like I spend a lot of time thinking about the specific journal. Like I get asked a review for like mind and language versus uh, philosophical studies. I think it's like different. I only care about that stuff where you know some journals have a a, a pretty clear interdisciplinary mission. Uh, and so if something is seems like really, really just like pure philosophy or pure psychology, I say like I, I say by the way, this this is just pure and not I intrinsically interdisciplinary. But you might say in an interdisciplinary journal, one way of being interdisciplinary is you in, you include individual disciplines. But, yeah. I, but I do try to be pretty liberal in what I accept. You do. Yeah. And. Yeah, and so if I... I feel like grad students, when they first review, they're very harsh and critical. They want to reject everything. Yeah, I know. And, and then they gradually mellow out over time. <laughs> I, um, in fact, I, and I also don't do revise and resubmit. I say, I say no. either reject or uh, accept. 
and I say, by the way, here are some things that should be to the discretion of the author to change. Mm. And then I will spell out a whole bunch of things. But, but I know. It's very clear to me now that you've never reviewed any of my papers. <laughs> I've never got anything like this in a review. Uh, <laughs> I, I've come to this view gradually. Uh, I you know, it's almost like I feel like they should uh, have workshops on this in grad school for grad students like who are interested in being professionals. Because yeah. it's really, you know, they, there isn't really a good place where... Um, and, you know, and I've asked people, you know, people that we both know uh, to review things, and they've been hesitant. Like, what do I say? How, how do I phrase it? What, what, am I, what is my role? So I know that graduate students have these questions, and since I happen to know a couple of these people, they asked them because I think they felt comfortable. I don't know how comfortable in general, like if you're approached by a – I know when I was approached by a journal for the first time, I was just happy to be thought of. I was like, whoa, someone thinks of me as like a reviewer. Cool. But I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. You learn it by doing it a lot, and like so, uh, I, I do think that as um, as a you know, well, first of all, you know, besides having seminars on how to teach well and care about students and stuff like that, we should have some kind of professional workshop on reviewing what it means to be a reviewer um, for a journal and what your roles are and these kinds of questions just being yeah. talked about, you know, by people who do the job and stuff. So. Anyway, back to meditation. Meditation. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, because, like... by the way, this conversation is being had at the expense of me writing a report. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be turning one in today. <laughs> oh, there's so many things I'm supposed to be doing today. It's snow day. Fuck it. I mean, oops. It's not on the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, yeah, med meditating... Uh, the way the way I approach it is like all, all, there's all these things that are written about how you're supposed to do it and what you're supposed to think about. Yeah. And, and my approach is like I will try it. And I will I will be sincere because I'm not afraid. Like what if I find if I end up believing in God? Why does it matter of being afraid? <laughs> well, you are afraid though because uh, some people are afraid. Some said people... that you, no, but yeah. you too you are because I've heard you say like oh I'm not gonna. I'm not going to go down the road towards dualism. I won't even entertain that argument or that beginning point. So yeah, but that's that's a lot of macho bluff. I will entertain it. Oh, I see. I, I I mean, honestly, I really do think that it's good to be able to put yourself in 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 the shoes of various different views. And and I, I put think a lot macho of macho bluff was your name in high school, right? That was my, that was my name, <laughs> macho bluff. Uh, and I had to change to uh, Peter Mandic because I thought that was that seemed more plausible. <laughs> so okay, yes, you're open-minded. You meditated. You're not afraid of dualism. Now you're a dualist. Is that where we're going with this? <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, no. I might be uh, might be uh, inches away from a, becoming a panpsychist. Really? Yeah, because one of the things that you meditate on is uh, so you think about like. Animals and um, inanimate matter and uh, corpses and yeah. what you know you, you think Why about you like think about corpses. Well, one of the, one of the things that you're supposed to be <laughs> meditating on is impermanence. Ah, uh, yeah, fact I see. That you, you too will die. And uh, so you just is some like being in the world, aware of your own mortality, like dies on or some bullshit. Is that what's happening here? 
This is co- certainly some bullshit is happening. I don't know whether I think this is like a key Heidegger. Yeah, exactly. It might might be Heidegger. Being authentic. I think being authentic means living your life like aware that you're a finite creature that's going to die or something like that. That's part of it. But then yeah. another, at least for me, I end up thinking about things like, well, real. What really is the difference between something being alive and, and not being alive? It's a closed Einstein book, man. A dead person's a, a closed Einstein book. There's not a lot of difference between the way the molecules are moving. It, yeah. In a sense, it's the same molecules. It's the same old molecules, and they're doing their own the same old things they've always been doing. But there's this very slight change at the organizational level, and that seems to make all the difference to uh, human existence, what yeah. the sorts of things that we care about. And it, and it, when, when you're in this frame of mind of, of, of not just thinking about it, but you're trying to get yourself into a frame of mind where you're experiencing it, you're yeah. experiencing something like that everything is alive and also that everything is dead uh, at the same time and you're trying to transcend the duality, blah, 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 and make this be manifest in experience, uh, sometimes you, or you know, at least I do, I succeed. Uh-huh. I, I feel like I have experiences. It's not just a thought, but I'm having an experience of it being true. And then when right. I come back to it, when I come back to like a conversation with you and I'm just talking about philosophy or whatever, I do feel... A, a lot less hostile to, for example, panpsychism. Huh. So how do you reconcile panpsychism with higher order stuff? Because I know that, like, so if you take, you know, Chalmers has a, a footnote in his recent um, discussion with Benj Hiley. Um, Hiley. How do you say his last name? I don't know, but Benj. Uh, Hiley. Benj Hiley. Hiley. Yeah. Benj Hiley. Uh, so they had an exchange, I think, in analysis. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Wherever they had their little exchange, uh, Chalmers says in a footnote there that he thinks that there can be phenomenal properties, like the property of qualities, excuse me, like red uh, at a primitive, um, but that for them to be conscious experience requires self you being aware of it, so self-representation, um, so that you represent yourself uh, as having this phenomenal property. He doesn't think that's a reductive view. It's a, it's a non-physicalist kind of representation, whatever that means, but... So it is interesting that even someone who's a, a panpsychist eventually invokes something like higher order awareness, although he says it's self-representation and it's only a distant cousin of higher order thoughts. And you know he's right about that, obviously. I think, but but on that view, the qualities themselves are already of such a nature as to uh, not require the higher order stuff to account for why they are that way when you experience them. Whereas on the traditional higher to thought theory or higher to theories in general, the way you experience them is not because of the way those things are, but the way you represent them as being. Um, and so you have to, I think, pick a side there about what, what the most fundamental thing is. Uh, so if you're a panpsychist, the fundamental thing is the quality itself, like the actual redness of the thing. If you're a higher order thought theorist, then yes, it's the way you're aware of yourself or something that's the, the more fundamental thing um, so that the quality is not going to be read out there on its own. But so, so what do you say about that? I mean, you don't have to say anything, would, but yeah, I would, if I would, I would go with the, with the higher order people. If you want to know as far as consciousness goes, what's more right. fundamental. So um, then what's panpsychist about this thing you're talking about then? That, um, What's going on here is not really different, any different in kind. What's uh-huh. going on in, with with Pete and Richard inside their brains is not really uh, very different in kind from what's going on in a bacterium or what what's going on in a cup of coffee. Yeah, 
And one way to get happy with this is... Uh, I mean, but, you know, can I just ask what you mean by that? Because you might say what's going on in gold is not very different than what's going on in lead. Right, yeah, <laughs> like sure. A, a proton or two is missing, or so, I forget it. I think that's exact. a great model. You know, so take, take uh, look at the difference between uh, the uh, chemistry from the point of view of the atomic theory of matter versus, like, a four elements alchemical or Aristotelian view. Right. But, uh, there are these like differences in kind, like the water and air and fire, just completely different substances. Where, from the point of view of a, of contemporary chemistry, there are these quantitative differences, and there's um, right. Uh, you you can see these different behaviors that you get uh, as a result of having uh, you know more or less um, occupied valence shells, and it, it, it's 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 understandable why at at a macro level you would have one thing that um, is a yeah. is a metal and another thing that is a uh, you know yeah see I remember an episode a long time ago you said not everything can be explained by ionic bonding uh, no not natural yeah. bonds. well no slow down buddy <laughs> ionic bonding baby yeah <laughs> in You're fact I would say in terms of ionic bonding. I would say most of everything can be explained. Most things in the physical world can be explained by electromagnetism and the strong nuclear force uh, because they explain all the ways the atoms, almost all the ways atoms interact with each other. But anyway, ionic That's bonding, cool. baby. You don't, you don't win that fight. Oh, I just did. You just, appe you just appealed to it. And I didn't. Look, I don't deny the existence of ionic bonding. That's not what we were fighting about. We're, we're it explains what's the difference between lead and gold. Yeah, but it doesn't give you an account of natural kinds in general. Yeah, it does because it explains the way these things naturally interact with each other. But there are other things that are natural kinds, like for example, all made electrons. Of atoms. <laughs> electrons are made out of atoms. Um, well, no, why electrons aren't made out of atoms? But that's a natural kind. Electron is a natural kind. Yeah, and they're explained in terms of so the natural thing there is electromagnetism, the electromagnetic that, force, and yeah. that does explain electrons uh -huh. and the strong and the strong nuclear force, which, by the way, at high energy levels just be, is becomes something like the electro strong weak whatever force. So the electro weak force, I think they call it, or some I don't know. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I think actually you can. Well, now <laughs> that you, you were sick of physics, you. you were sick of physics. I, yeah, I am. So, this is a physics argument. But anyway, so you would say that there's not that much of a difference between gold and lead right. because, you know, proton, electron, whatever, there's not, not that much of a difference. But it does make a difference. It makes all the difference to their interactive properties. Um, it makes a very, I mean, gold behaves very differently than uh, lead, even though they have some similarities, you know, metals and so forth and so on different properties, so it does make a difference. It, it, but it's intelligible how these so-called, uh, these seeming qualitative differences aren't real qualitative differences. They are uh, these quantitative differences. And I think, uh -huh. that, you know, uh, maybe we're close to that, to understanding the difference between biological and non-biological stuff. Have you seen this recent thing about entropy and this guy has got this, I forgot the name of the scientist, but he's got this way of thinking about life as a certain yeah, kind of... Yeah, resolution of a dis dissipation of entropy. Uh -huh. It's a little bit over my head, but um, but it looks like a, a cool, unified, mathematically rigorous way of of describing how life fits into the rest of the universe. Okay. Which which 
is still kind of a mystery. Like we we still really don't know uh, how abiogenesis occurred. Yeah. Um, no, I know. This was a point I was making to you, functionalist types, when uh, we were discussing this. So, yeah. <laughs> well, look, we, we yeah, don't, like, one thing we do know is functionalism is not going to be falsified, whatever the whatever the right answer is. So don't get your hopes up, Richard. <laughs> uh, it might be if something non-functional but biological is required for life. <laughs> But do you want to do a second episode? I got time. Jen's so, not yelling at me yet. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to end. I'm going to end this. Okay, I have to use the bathroom, so that's a good idea. All right, but anyways, I'll send you a link and e so check your email when you come back from the bathroom. You ain't the boss of me. Thank you.